Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm excited about today's guest because today's guest is not only an expert in the field of sales and marketing, but we've actually shared a stage together at a keynote address uh, last year, and I got to hear uh, Matt speak live myself. And so uh, Matt Hines is, if you've known Matt, you probably do know Matt, especially if you're in the sales and marketing world, prolific author, nationally recognized, award-winning blogger. He's the president and founder of Hines Marketing, 20 years of marketing, business development, sales experience. Um, I will tell you that he's a dynamic speaker. I can connect with his his sense of humor because his sense of humor <laughs> is very similar to mine. I think we both have the spiritual gift of sarcasm, which is an awesome thing to have. Um, he's actually been a repeat winner in the top 50 most influential people in sales lead management and top 50 sales and marketing influencers. And one of the other things that Matt and I have in common is where I want to start off with Matt today, is being an old farm boy myself growing up on the farm in Ohio, Matt is currently still, I believe, working through this 105-year-old historic farmhouse renovation in Washington with his wife, Beth, their three young children, and of course, their dog, rabbits, and chickens. So Matt, let's start there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, that is all all true. Uh, we just we finished the major part of the remodel, but as most 100-plus-year-old houses go, you're never done. It's just a continual process. And, um, you know, we're on a, we're not on a big piece of land. We're about a half an acre, but you know, it's, we've got chickens. Uh, we got a little orchard in the back. Uh, you know, we've got, got produce going year round. Um, my wife is the green thumb. I am infrastructure. Uh, I talk and type <laughs> for a living. So on the weekends I work on my calluses and build everything from planter boxes to deer fences to, uh, chicken coops. And I, I love it. It's, I, I love it. It's very fun. It's, it's, the kids have a blast just running around uh, outside. It's it's a good thing. Now, let me ask you, since obviously this podcast is about driving change. Now, you all didn't live on a farm before you right. did before you did live on a farm. So what was what was that personal change like for you being a business owner who travels a lot and also probably changing from living not on a farm to a family that now lives on a farm? Yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's a half acre, so it's not a huge farm. But I think, you know, I remember in the, the house we had previously, we had you know, a regular sized backyard with a small little, you know, lawn. And we had, you know, my wife had some rose bushes. And then one day she, I come home and she says, I'd like to get chickens. <laughs> and I said, well, first of all, like we live in a suburb of Seattle, like we're just in a na- regular neighborhood. Like, is that, can we even do that? And right. second, they're going to be noisy and smelly and dirty. Are we really, what are we doing getting chickens? And I have found now, so we started with like two chickens, right? We now have nine. Uh, by next spring, we'll have replaced some of the flock. We'll probably have 13 to 14. Obviously, more space, bigger coop. But I think having chickens, the chickens are lower maintenance than cats. They're really, and they're not necessarily pets, but, you know, our chickens have names. The kids have their favorites. Um, and so from there, you know, getting getting a little more land and then having enough space in the back to have, like, we every year now we have these huge pumpkin patches um it's more than i ever thought i do but honestly like on a on the weekend when the sun's out even if the sun's not out you know put a little baseball on the radio and get some work outside it's it feels really good 
And I imagine that the, the the homeowners association that you left now has a new set of bylaws in there as well about chickens, probably, right? <laughs> well, so a we didn't we didn't have one of the old place, but there is in the city of in the city of Kirkland, you're allowed to have chickens, but I think uh, you're only allowed to have so many. We may have we may have uh, we may have violated the volume, exceeded but, uh, it. Right. Yeah, the, you can pay for it back in eggs, right? You exactly, can, you can exactly, eggs, so. exactly. Well, one of the big reasons I wanted to have you on today, other than the fact that you're, you're just such a prolific writer and you've been studying this idea of the buyer journey um, for so long, and it's, it's you know it used to be the old sales funnel, right, in the old school days, but that was as we've started to evolve and really recognizing the need to make this thing about the customer, imagine that, versus ourselves. Yeah, right. Um, one of the things I thought we could start with is if you could just give the audience your perspective on the evolution of things from a sales funnel to a buyer journey and how that's evolved, especially over the last 10 years. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's, there's still a lot of value in using the sales funnel as a metaphor and as a, as a management uh, tool. Uh, I think knowing that there are certain stages that prospects go through and as they get deeper into that sales process, more prospects drop out. So thinking of it as a process uh, that is, that is a, that is a linear process, I think is fine. But the reality is that most prospects don't follow that linear process. They go back and forth. They go backwards. They go sideways. Um, and I think thinking about it, the buyer's journey also reflects the fact that no matter how good we are as sellers, no matter how good our process, no matter how good our messaging, it doesn't matter unless we actually follow the way prospects buy, unless we respect the way prospects buy. And I think you also now, especially if you're doing complex selling, whether you're in marketing or sales, you have to respect the fact that there is a buying committee that is involved. There's a multiple people inside of the buying organization that are involved in making decisions that have a vested interest in the outcome that you represent. So taking that buyer-centric view and operationalizing that as the way that you sell and the way that you market. And so I'm going to use sell as a function of what sales and marketing have to do here, it reduces the amount of friction that other companies artificially put into the process and makes it a lot easier for companies to engage with prospects on their terms to increase interest, engagement, and velocity towards making a decision. Yeah, one of the things that I've also found is um, I spent a week last week with one of our large clients that we've been working on with for three years, and, and they're the, the idea for them of integrating sales and marketing was revolutionary four years ago when I introduced, yeah. the, con introduced the concept. Um, and I love how you describe that a lot of companies in the past, they viewed marketing and sales as, well, there's a horizontal line somewhere between when you give me the lead or when you develop the lead and when you pass it over to me as a salesperson. Yeah. And I think that what I'd love for you to, to tell the audience about is your experience on how that how that integration has evolved and what's critical for them as companies, whether you're a small business today and you're, you're, you are the sales and marketing and the owner, or whether you're a large B2B company like many of us work with, what's that look like from an integration standpoint? Well, I think historically we have split the sales funnel horizontally in the middle where we said marketing owns the top of the funnel and sales owns the bottom. And the middle point is usually kind of a lead handoff. Hey, here's some leads. Hey, here's some collateral. Here's some sales sheets. Hey, sales, good luck. I think even whether you're selling to big organizations or even small organizations, or even if you yourself are a small organization, I, I believe sales and marketing have a role at every stage of the pipeline. So instead of splitting the funnel horizontally, we now split it vertically with a, with a diag diagonal bent. And what I mean by that is marketing may own the majority of the top of the process. Sales may own the majority of the bottom of the process. But I could argue that if you're building trust and relationships and credibility with those prospects, whether they're big or small that you want to have a lifetime value with, there's value in having sales and marketing involved at each stage. Let me give you an example. Let's say it's the last week of the month, last, last, uh, last week of the quarter, last couple of days of the month. 
and you have a prospect that is that is that is just on the cusp of buying and there's one member of the buying committee that has not yet bought off they haven't yet said yes as a marketing team why wouldn't you lean in and create content for an audience of one at that point as opposed to celebrating your retweet that you hit your retweet goal down at the bar or saying well i can't do anything anymore i generated leads i gotta focus on leads for the next quarter get in there with sales get into the weeds get in get in the trenches get dirty and do something that historically has been inefficient for marketing teams to do, but that you know could actually get that deal closed, that could increase the level of credibility you have with sales and hit the only number that matters, which is the sales and revenue number that grows your business. Yeah, that's so that's so good. And I, and I think that this is another point that, that dovetails off of what you just commented on is when, when I encounter a lot of organizations today in the big, the larger B2B space, the role of marketing has changed and evolved quickly over the last yep. decade, 15 years. But many marketers who were traditionally cha- you know, trained back in the in the five Ps, they, they have not. So there's a lot of brand marketers out there who think that their success rises and falls on how many you know, page views they can drive people to or what the brand awareness, the unaided brand awareness is in market research. Can you speak to the difference today between today's marketer who still has that requirement, but also has a primary function of supporting the sales conversation? Well, I think a lot of those functions are still important just because we're talking, sitting here talking about a more revenue responsible marketing organization doesn't mean that brand isn't important. Doesn't mean that impressions aren't important. Um, you know, you still have to build a presence for your company and your organization just that people want to seek you out. So people, so you're validating credibility in the market so that your sales team, people can sell the difference to me now is whether or not people see that those that those brand impressions those clicks those retweets is that a means unto the end or is that the end right most marketing scorecards many marketing scorecards still to this day focus on well how many clicks did we get how many likes did we get or even how many leads did we get i mean those are all vanity metrics you can't buy a beer with any of those things right and so if i now say listen i in order for me to generate marketing influence on the sale I'm going to get impressions with the right prospects. I'm going to increase the amount of engagement I get with buyers within our target accounts, right? Uh, if you think if you think of that as a means unto the end, you're probably going to make better, more targeted decisions about where you build that brand and who you get those clicks and engagements from. But this is another reason why I think, you know, thinking about the entire funnel and thinking about the impact you have at every stage is so important. It may not even be about generating leads. I mean, this is again where you could have someone generating a bunch of leads for a sales organization that could be counterproductive to the sales team's goal if those are crappy leads. Right. If those are just a bunch of hand raisers that actually don't have the need. I'm, I'm not interested in whether or not they have want a demo. Most prospects don't want a demo until later in the process. But if those prospects don't even have a problem you can solve, those are not good leads. That's a problem. So I think, yeah, it's a, it's a big problem. So I think some organizations, some marketing teams focus less on leads and more on buying signal identification, more on looking at the prospects you already know. If you already know who they are, they're already in your database. Look for levels of engagement to tell me that they're warming up, that they're more likely to be interested in the conversation. That may be a more efficient use of marketing's time to drive qualified pipeline in a repeatable, predictable manner. Now, how do you feel about this idea of customization from a marketing content standpoint uh, throughout the buyer journey from, you know, the awareness all the way through to the now it's a quote unquote marketing qualified lead? Um, how do you feel like that's evolved and what are your recommendations for the personalization and customization of content for exactly what you're talking about? Because we're looking at such a diverse group of buyers, even within the same organization today. 
I think it's critical. I think it's critical. I think, you know, I've, I've read that upwards to 80 to five to 90% of content created for sales goes unused. And many companies listen to that, hear that and they translate it into, well, I guess I should create 90% less content. So I'll just give them the 10% that matters. Unfortunately, the opposite is true. Your sales team needs way more content yeah. because you need the right piece of content for the right prospects at the right stage of that buying journey. Now, content quote unquote, doesn't necessarily mean 20 page white paper. It doesn't mean, you know, a five page sales sheet. It could be a quote. It could be a statistic. It could be something very small that just gets the, gets that prospect to move to the next step. Right. right? So content does not have to be formal or published, but if, if I had the opportunity to get 30 seconds in front of my prospect, what would I tell them today? Not to convince them to buy, but to convince them to keep walking with me so I can tell them more, to want the next phone call, to be willing to read the next email. And so that, that requires a level of customization of the content. Now there's a difference between that, that level of pipeline precision on your content and then personalization that really brings it home, not just for, you know, the VP of, you know, of IT at this stage of the buying journey at a manufacturing company, but then there's doing it for John, you know, whose company just went through a round of layoffs uh, who has been using your 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 competitor's platform for four years, um, and who likes SEC football? Like, there's a level of customization that happens there that is different than just precision of message to the right place and right time. Right, and that's to your earlier point. To get to that level of customization, you have to have sales as input because they're the ones who typically know that information. That's correct. I mean, there are more and more systems. There's it, from a marketing perspective. There are more and more systems that allow marketers to, to, to identify that information online where it exists. Um, there are new artificial intelligence platforms that can combine data from multiple systems and make some pretty darn good educated guesses about where prospects are so they can customize that information. None of that will replace not just the intelligence you get from a salesperson, but a salesperson's ability to authentically communicate that to a prospect in right. a natural conversational manner. Like there's, I don't care how good the computers get. No one's going to replace that. Right. Um, but I think I'm excited to see some of the advances of data availability as well as uh, in artificial intelligence that are improving marketing's ability to create those customized messages and do it at scale. So I want to jump into technology before we end, but I, but I don't want to get there too fast. But I have another question yeah. about the content piece because we, we hear this a lot from our clients. It, depending on their level of sophistication and more importantly, the level of bandwidth inside their marketing teams, they feel overwhelmed that they can't create enough content to serve the market that they're trying to serve, especially when they've started really from ground zero and they're trying to build a content library, for instance. And they just feel like to, to put together uh, an automation, marketing automation process, they just don't have near enough content. What do you say to those types of marketers and, and clients? Well, look, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to conflict what I said earlier. I think you do need to have more and more precise content, but that doesn't mean it has to be your content, right? The right message for your prospect might be something that an analyst firm already put together that you can simply curate and put in front of them. Um, you know, if you watch our, uh, our social media feeds, you'll see us promoting content. Most of that content is not our own. Most of it's sales and marketing advice from a lot of other people. I will be happily promote blog posts from my competitors if I think it's relevant to my audience, right? Cause I get the credit for being the source of the curation. Right. So I think that if you don't feel like you have enough time and effort to create content today, even if you create zero content, all of the content out there is available to you. As long as you give credit and give attribution back to those that created it, you can curate it. You can collect it together. You can package it in a way that the prospects are going to want to are, are, are going to value it. 
Yeah, that's such a good point. I hope that everyone out there heard that clearly is that I think for the especially you marketers who are listening, get overwhelmed thinking you can't mm-hmm. come up with enough content. The curation process, to, to Matt's point, there's an infinite amount of content out there that speaks directly to your prospects exactly where they are. And then you get the credit for basically being a thought leader by showing them something that even someone else uh, created. In fact, well, we had Neil Schaefer on a couple of weeks back on the podcast, and he's obviously social media is his, his darling. And he had a great point that the, the social media world is moving to these larger organizations of trying to create individual thought leaders at every level of the organization, no matter who you are, that you should be out there curating content and commenting on things, whether you're a, a salesperson who just started yesterday or whether you're an executive inside an organization. That's the same concept, right? It's that principle of commenting on content, curating content as a marketer, putting it out in the, into the webosphere to help generate more of that brand awareness. Well, and, and, you know, Anne Hanley for Marketing Profs has been famous for saying everything the light touches is content. So to your point, you know, content doesn't have to be a 20-page white paper. It doesn't have to be an 800-word blog post. It could be your response in three sentences to what someone else wrote. I mean, even think about just tactically like LinkedIn. Like, your followers are going to, are going to more likely see something that you commented on, and that's a positive impression if they like what you saw. And that's all you're looking for with most content, right? right? I mean, it, most people are not reading every one of your blog posts. Most people... As, as awesome as awesome as this podcast is, most of your subscribers probably aren't listening to every minute of every episode, nor are they doing the same with mine. But when they see a new one came in, they're like, oh, yeah, that's really good. Oh, yeah, that stuff is really good. Right. Oh, that blog or that newsletter is usually good. Um, that reputation is what's going to earn you more engagement and attention. And, you know, a lot of this is just being in the right place at the right time. And that steady stream of quality content in all of its forms is a big part of what's going to keep you top of mind with the prospects you care about the most. Yeah, that's that's old school, right? That, that's 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 never going to change, right? Intersecting right. A, a prospect in a time of need uh, right. with a solution to a problem they have. That's the way that sales has been since we uh, sold the first elk out of the cave. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's important. So the other question I had for you is. I make a joke, we make a joke a lot with our clients that they're so eager to describe their product and, and we call it the watches effect. Like you go to New York City and someone, you walk around the corner and the guy opens his trench coat, right? He's got lots, of, I got watches and, yeah. they, and they want to sell you every watch that they've got, not knowing that you, whether you need a watch or not. Um, and I think that marketers and salespeople both have the, sometimes if they're not really careful, they want to push a lot of product content early in the buyer journey or early in the prospect engagement when that's really self-serving. Do you have any thoughts? Do you have any thoughts on that? I'll tell you what, I got a simple rule on this one. And the longer you wait in your sales process to talk about yourself, the more successful you will be because your prospects don't care about you. They care about themselves. The prospects don't care about your product. They care about their problems. The prospects don't care about your drill. They care about their hole. So the longer you wait, the more you are building trust, the more you are building context, the more you actually are building some level of commitment from your prospect to solve a problem that they did or, known, didn't, did or didn't know that they have, a commitment to change something in their organization for their own betterment. What you do to deliver that is secondary. I promise you. It sounds sound counterintuitive, but what you sell is not important as important as how you sell. So for those of who've been fans and followers of Brain Trust for 10 years, I want you to rewind that last minute and tell me if that sounds familiar at all, because <laughs> Matt just summed up what we've been teaching from the neuroscience and psychology standpoint for 10 years. And I could not agree with you more about that. And yet, here's the thing. We know psychologically and from a, a biology standpoint, when the human brain is under stress, it likes to communicate from its highest level of training. 
Mm-hmm. And when its highest level of training is product, facts, figures, features, and opinions, what happens? That's what comes blobbing out of my mouth or blobbing onto my, onto my content page because that's what I'm the most familiar with. And, yeah. and I love the idea that you said that and I, we, we, we communicate this a lot. When you can become as familiar with your customer's problems as you are with your product, you'll start to make headway. Well, we talk a lot with marketers about this. Um, you say, listen, like you, you need to get to the point where you aren't asking your prospects what keeps them up at night. You're telling them what should keep them up at night. Mm. You know, so good. So and true. if you can, and if you can do that, then you're going to create content that resonates. I mean, we even tell when, when we pass leads along to the sales organization, you know, we'll like, we'll often say, listen, in that first call you're getting, I don't want you to talk about yourself at all. Like if someone asks you a direct question, fine. Otherwise, if you're not allowed, if, if talking about your business and your products is off the table, what are you going to talk about? What are the questions you're going to ask? Instead of asking someone, hey, thanks for downloading the white paper. Would you like to see a demo? Ask them why they downloaded the white paper. Like what, what about that topic is prescient right now? Like have that conversation more interesting for them, more valuable for you. And yeah, you might get fewer immediate demos set up, but I guarantee you three steps is faster than one when you do it the right way. Hundred percent, couldn't agree more. That's that's so good, and that's where I think where sales and marketing, when you commu- communication is communication. It might be in written word, it might be through social media, it might be through the spoken word in a face to face sales uh, engagement. But what you're talking about transcends that, right? It's yeah. wh- whose agenda are you on, right? If you're on the customer's agenda, the prospect's agenda, you'll communicate that way. Pro- pro- problem is though, for most of us, we have a quota. For most companies, we have revenue goals. The stress associated with those things drives us to want to tell more people about our watches, what they just yeah. knew about our watches, Matt. Oh, I know. Who would buy more I, watches? Look, I'm right there with you. Like, I mean, I'm not, I don't have, I don't have the same nor nearly as big a com- uh, company as most of the companies we work with, but I'm not just the president of the hair club for men. I'm also a client and that, you know, I've got a business to run as well. I've yeah. got to feed the, I got to make payroll here. Right. And I'm, I'm, we're still small. I, I am the primary business development guy right. for our company. So I would love, I mean, look, I'm trying to close deals here for Q4 as we record this. I can't call people up and say, I really got to make this. I really got to make my number. Can you close this deal? <laughs> right. I have to find reasons that it makes sense for them. Right. Like I have to tie that to an objective they have. So, you know, you mentioned like your company has to be a top tier priority for them. I agree. But I, instead of saying your company is like this problem that I solve right? Like filling your pipeline for Q1 has to be a big enough priority. Reducing the lumpiness of sales pipeline contribution for marketing has to be a big enough problem. And so I either have to bring up that problem or quantify that problem or create an understanding of the opportunity cost of not solving that problem so that that becomes a high priority. Only then am I going to get a prospect that is going to be an enthusiastic buyer and lean into the solution with me to get it, get it deployed. Yeah, we we joke a lot as well with our clients that they call their products a solution. But when I ask them what the problem is it solves, it's like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you can't call it a solution if it doesn't solve a problem. Right. So, well, let's let's uh, go ahead and transition then and talk a little bit about the change in technology mm-hmm. um, and the availability both on the marketing front and the sales demand uh, front. Uh, what has evolved? What have you? How have you seen the evolution of the last decade, especially with technology? Where did it come from? Where is it today? And where do you think it's going tomorrow? That'll help both marketers and salespeople. Yeah, I mean, I, I think technology is both a blessing and a curse. I think it's a blessing, and that is, boy, I mean, we're taking manual processes and we are automating them in a really helpful way. We're taking things that humans used to have to do, and now robots can do them in a repeatable and predictable way. That is awesome. Uh, but I think technology can get in the way if we think technology is the strategy, 
Uh, there's an awful lot of companies that will buy a tool and say, well, I'm doing account-based marketing now, or, you know, now I'm just, you know, I'm automating, sending a lot more emails out. And unless you have an interesting story, unless you have a real strategy for how that technology and its, and its usage is going to integrate with the rest of the way that you're, that you're selling, it may not actually, actually be that useful. And so, you know, we used to have a lot of companies come to us and say, help us build up, build out our technology stack. We still have that happen, but more and more often, we're having companies come to us and say, boy, have we bought too much. It is a mess. <laughs> right. Right. Can you help us deconstruct our tech stack to focus on what really matters and things that will have an impact? So in some regards, the, the, the tech stack companies, if you will, they've done a nice job of, of selling their watches over the last decade because B2B companies are riddled full of technology. That's, most of the time, it's a, it's a giant internet paperweights. Well, I think there's, yeah, I mean, there's, I think that's a lot of tech companies have been very good at associating their product with a particular problem or, you know, area of focus for sales and marketing. Like, you know, so like, you know, people that have, um, people that have, uh, are doing account-based marketing. Like, you know, there's, there's tools, companies have been good at saying, well, to do account-based marketing, you need this tool. Well, A, that's not always the case. And B, the tool is not going to write your strategy for you. So right. then you end up with people that have these tools that aren't connected to each other, where you're paying for a tool for the second month, third month, four month, and you're like, wow, what should we do with it? Right? Well, that question should have been asked first. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, most modern, all mod, all successful modern marketing and sales teams could not be where they are without the tools that they're using, bar not. But you have to have a strategy for how you're using them to get the most out of them, to make to, to make the most use of them so you can see that predictable, repeatable success. Do you have any recommendations, Matt, for companies? I know it, it's very, it varies depending on size and capability, but from a bare minimum of technology in your stack to, boy, here's the creme de la creme if you've got the ability and the strategy and the people. Yeah, I mean, I think most companies can get by doing the basics with a good CRM system and a good marketing automation platform. I think those are a couple of the basics. Um, you know, there are some sales engagement tools like Salesloft and Outreach and um, and VanillaSoft that can be really, really successful in helping to improve the efficacy of your sales organization. Uh, I think that uh, attribution reporting tools and some level of predictive artificial intelligence for enterprise marketing teams has been really, really effective in improving precision um, of account selection and sort of how and why and when you're going after your target audience. Um, but what underlies all of those is the good story. I mean, you can have these tools and if all you're doing is opening up your trench coat and trying to sell a watch, it's right. still not going to work very well. So, so true. So let's talk for a minute then as we start to, to land the plane a little bit. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your company and about Heinz Marketing and um, what, what are uh, what are some of the things you want us to know out there, the audience to know about what you guys are up to these days and, and some things that maybe they can go check out for themselves? Yeah, well, I appreciate the opportunity. And I'm going to I'm going to follow our I'm going to drink our own champagne here. I'm not going to show you any watches. Um, but I think, you know, we've spent the last 11 years uh, publishing a ton of content on a wide variety of B2B sales and marketing uh, areas. So we've got a ton around demand generation around sales enablement, around, you know, the buying journey and the content strategy behind it. We, over the last, you know, three or four years have done a lot of research on everything from uh, marketing channel effectiveness to how sales enablement is working to why do B2B uh, CMOs buy and how do they engage in the buying process. So, and I'd encourage you, if you, if you, if you, any of that sounds interesting, just check out HeinzMarketing.com, go to the resources section and uh, everything's going to be free to download. It's the research, a bunch of best practice guides, all of our past blog posts, um, and our podcast as well, Sales Pipeline Radio, has been another great channel for us to 
sort of features some really smart people in the industry. That's that's fantastic. And I've, and I've been on your site multiple times. And I think that I, I knew about you, Matt, before uh, we had a chance to speak together at that conference last year. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, you've been pumping out great content and you've been on the cutting edge of this for a long time now. And so for the audience out there, um, jump on his podcast, jump on his website. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a marketer or whether you're in sales, you can learn something from Matt and his team. And it isn't just about their watches. There is a ton of great content on there. Oh, and by the way, they make a pretty good watch. <laughs> um, well, is there anything else you want to, you have coming up that you want to talk about any, any events that people might attend that you're coming up on that are public or anything else you want to share with the oh, audience? Yeah. No, I appreciate that. I mean, there, so on our website, we have an events page where you can check out where I'm going to be literally tomorrow getting on a plane, going to the Marketing Profs B2B Marketing Summit, which is always really good. Um, you know, I think we're going to kind of slow things down a little from a travel standpoint the rest of this year. And so what that means is I'll probably be writing a lot more again. So uh, yeah, just check out Heinz Marketing, check out our blog. We've got a bunch of interesting new research coming out over the next few months and, you know, watching the blog and watching our Twitter feed, which is just at Heinz Marketing is a good way to find all that. Excellent. Well, again, thanks so much for your time. And we look forward to continuing this relationship as well as my audience now being able to engage with you and your audience. Thanks so much. It's been great. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.